1: Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. So, uh, thank you very much for being here. This uh, whole Dharma enterprise is a mutual benefit event that we are here to, whether we intend it or not, we're deeply connected to ourselves, to each other and deeply benefiting each other in the Dharma. That without this mutual benefit and ways in which we interact and share the Dharma and practice together, uh, there would be no Dharma that would have survived from the time of the Buddha down to today. And now here we are. And one of the little songs and chants that I learned here at the family retreat that um, kind of represents the deep way in which we're doing this together and, and uh, we're kind of a mutual benefit society is the chant that goes, we are a circle within a circle with no beginning and never ending. Some of you have done it before, right? You wanna join me? We are a circle, within a circle, with no beginning and never ending. We are a circle, within a circle, with no beginning and never ending. We are a circle within a circle, with no beginning and never ending. So here we are. And uh, it's a family retreat. So the idea of practicing in family, it's a particular close in sangha or dharma community. And uh, I spent uh ten t- intensive years as a monastic living in Buddhist monasteries, retreat centers, practicing intensely and that worked very well for me and And then, after a while, I had kids, family and in retrospect, I learned that the monastic life was relatively easy for me in my personality uh It was in family that i Started to grow <laughs> in all kinds of ways, and uh, and there was so much uh, learning for me to do in that context, and <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was not as pleasant as the retreats for me, but I think it was much more. I don't know if more valuable, but certainly. Um, it was, you know, if I look back at these last now 20 years that I've been a parent and very, very grateful for the challenges and the difficulties and, and, um, and I wouldn't exchange it for anything because of uh, how much I've understood and learned and grown in the Dharma. And one of the ways that I have developed and grown uh, is, is paradoxically, given what I just said about what, how I've grown, is uh, how profoundly I've come to appreciate the the mutuality that goes on, the community, and how we're not really so separate from each other. We we are and we're not, and the stance between the self and others, and how we move between all that, and how and the necessary of finding a balance between these t- two aspects of our life, self and others. I think that uh, my early years of Buddhism. Uh, I felt very fortunate that I was practicing very much in community settings where the living together and being in residence and monasteries together was the way it was done. And so there was a wonderful kind of uh, weaving in and out of practicing for oneself and practicing with other people and being reflected by other people, being challenged by other people and um, learning from other people, being inspired by them. and. And kind of it going kind of full circle around and benefiting. And over my years of being uh, 40 years or plus now being a Buddhist practitioner, uh, generally the, the Buddhist practitioners that have inspired me the most are the ones that really have allowed themselves to interact with others and really a part of being in community or Uh, in some kind of way in which we really kind of know each other well or deeply or something um, that allows all the different aspects of who we are come into view. And that the ones, those who kind of have sometimes a tremendous sincerity and dedication and practice and practice really well and are inspiring in their own ways, but don't have community, uh, it seems like there's a whole parts of who they are that don't get included as part of the practice. And so there's kind of often kind of seemingly some of like a blinders on about parts of themselves in a way that when we're together, we don't, doesn't get as integrated and full. And, um, and I like to think of that. There's two wings or two, two hands in the sense for the Dharma practice. And ideally they'd be in balance. Sometimes we'd emphasize one more than the other. And on one hand, there is this emphasis on that's very personal, that uh, and you know no one else can do this practice but ourselves in some way. And the other hand, there is something that's very communal, very collectivist and, and group focused. And without the group, without others, there would be no Dharma and no practice. And um, and uh, but and for some people, different people, those two hands, those two sides are different doors of how people come into the Dharma. And the side that has to do with the more personal part of it, you know, it's kind of, I think of it as being represented by, uh, the idea that, you know, generally in our scene here, when we sit down to meditate, we sit and close our eyes. And so when the eyes close, it's very personal what goes on. It's here in ourselves. And, um, and, uh, you know, it's up to us. A lot of it's up to us to engage. Up to us to learn the skills. Up to us to kind of do it in some way. And it's not so strange that we that that's the case. There's many worthwhile things in the, in this life that people do, that requires individual effort and development of a skill and all that. And for example, if someone has great compassion for the world and wants to be a lifesaver and at the beach, uh, the good thing to do first is to learn how to swim. Uh, Without that, it's not going to help anyone. And learning that skill of swimming is, you know, you might learn it from someone who teaches you, but it's a, you know, it's a personal skill. You have to kind of work on it and learn it, learn it yourself and your body and your arms. And, you know, it's something you have to kind of train in doing. And, uh, and then once you have that, then you're able to go and be a lifesaver go out there and do something else. The Buddha had this uh, very powerful kind of teaching around being a you know an individual in a sense, or you know that uh, that's more personal side. And it's a, I find it a wonderful little. It's a, from the Dhammapada. It's a verse, and there are two lines of a verse. And uh, you don't have to agree with it, what I'm going to recite, but uh, it's very powerful to. Carried with you and debate with it, and use it as a reference point to reflect on your life and what's goes on and um, and it, it, especially I think for parents and uh, this verse has different relevance in different ways at different ages that the children are, and uh, you'll probably start to you know understand what I mean uh, and the the line goes um. Do not sacrifice your own welfare for the welfare of others, no matter how great. Don't sacrifice your own welfare for the welfare of others, no matter how great. So parents sacrifice their welfare all the time. And that's been one of the powerful things when I was a new parent was how, you know, I, I, how to say it, um, at times effortless, um, ways in which when my kids were really teeny, uh, I, I was delighted in how I didn't matter anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, so like if I didn't have a chance to take a shower and I had to go to the market with, you know, stinking and, you know, hardly out of my pajamas and, you know, what people thought of me just for a while, it just didn't matter. You know, just, you know, I just, what mattered was this baby. And taking care of the baby and doing these things, and and um, and my own, you know, you know, just all kinds of things I didn't take care of, and being up all through the night, I didn't think twice of it. It was just like, oh, this is what has to happen, and and it felt like some something dropped away. There was a kind of a wonderful selflessness that was there for a little while, and it was all for the sake of this person who couldn't do t- do anything for themselves. These two boys I had. But then as they got older, um, I was a little bit slow to catch on. But what I learned is that it didn't make sense to keep doing that. (laughs) And not only didn't make sense, it wasn't healthy for them. That they had to grow up in a system where they understand there was a mutuality, where uh, everyone's needs had to be taken care of in some way, or find a balance or compromise or work together. And if it was all about sacrificing myself to, only for the welfare of their kid, we'd probably end up creating just selfish kids, you know, self-focused kids. And they need to learn a little bit how to be in community and share and give and take and, you know, the mutuality of it all. And it said, at some point it became appropriate that my situation, my needs, my things, uh, you know, would somehow begin becoming more important again. And I think that happens somewhat naturally as the kids got older. Um, but the manifestation it took was uh, sometimes was resentment, <laughs> you know, anger, frustration, you're like, Oh, you know, like <laughs> it was hard, you know, to fit in and know how to find that balance. And, and uh, you know, and sometimes my, what I wanted to do was when it you know, was greater than what the, si- the system would allow for. And sometimes the system's needs or so-called needs. Uh, you know, I gave myself over to too much, and and lost something here that needed to be taken care of as well to find a balance. So this idea that don't sacrifice your own welfare, no matter how great, for someone else. No, don't, don't don't sacrifice your own welfare for someone's el- else's welfare, no matter how great. I think as it starts to making more and more sense as as the children get older, and one of the ways that. Uh, I think as uh, Dharma practitioners, this plays out, is that I believe that one of the uh, greatest things that I could offer my children uh, is the Dharma, or to say it in non-Dharmic terms, is to offer them a sense of um, deep, sense of inner peace, well-being, freedom, compassion, that we can walk through the world uh, feeling that we can carry with us, inside of us, a safety and a wisdom, and a trust that we can that will support kids, children, people to find their way no matter where they are, no what goes on, and that uh, for me to be able to convey that to make my my children, um, it doesn't work. Didn't have, at least in my family, for me to sit them down and say, I have a Dharma talk for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but rather it's by osmosis, it's by the the example. And so we have to become our lifesaver. We have to learn how to swim first, right? We have to learn how to do this for ourselves. And so our own welfare in Buddhism has to do with really knowing the best health, healthy state of the heart, healthy state of the mind that's possible for human being. Um, and, uh, and then realize that that what the inner health is not something that should be sacrificed. Because if we do, then uh, we're teaching something different. If we do that, we are teaching, you know, to be neurotic. We're teaching it's okay to be anxious or okay to be angry or all kinds of things. One of the very powerful lessons I had with my, uh, uh, two children was, uh, uh the older child was often kind of a strong spirited kid. And, uh, and so sometimes he would be pushing against limits that shouldn't be gone beyond. And, uh, you know, you know, I'm kind of an amateur parent, so finding or finding the way was not always so easy. And, um, and so there were some times that I, I started using what I called my strong voice. (laughs) And, um, once I told them I'm going to, if you continue what you're doing, um, I'm gonna, uh, you know, I. uh, Well, it's a little different story. I'm confused, but I'll tell you anyway. I said, if you continue doing what you're doing, I'm gonna be angry. I thought that would be enough to get his attention, and it did. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, "Dad, you're already angry." (laughs) 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 And uh, but I used a strong voice, you know, because just and that would stop whatever the behavior was would stop us, you know. And I thought it was okay. And then. So that was, you know, and then one day I heard my older son use that strong, same strong voice on his younger brother, who was maybe like a year and a half or something. And I went, Oh, what have I done? And I, you know, I thought the short, in short term, that was a good strategy, but in the long term, it turned out it was not good for what, what was conveyed, what was okay or something like that. So, um, so slowly, I learned that you know that if we want to um, convey something healthy to our children, we have to be that way. Uh, a very powerful story, which I've told here before, which I, I think of often in these circumstances, because it had to do with a conversation that happened here and with a parent. I'd known this parent for some time, and uh, she had breast cancer, and she was working very hard to not to die. And uh, very diligent at looking for things and cures and this and that. Partly because she had a young child. I think the child was maybe something like between 9 and 11 or something. And um, she didn't want to die for the sake of the child. And uh, the last time I saw her here, she was angry. Because she was dying. And uh, apparently at that point there was no more options for her. And I told her that... um, uh, how she died would be one of the biggest influences in her child for the rest of the child's life and if the child if it saw her die angry by osmosis that would be what the child somehow learned that it was not safe to be in this world that there was unfair there was you know you can be angry and um and if she died peacefully that'd be a very different lesson about what it's like to live in this world and i never saw her again but after she died i got a phone call from the husband who said uh, uh, she, she has just just died, in, I don't know, in the last days or something. And, um, and she died in bed peacefully. And when she died, I went with the child out into the garden and we got a flower and we came back and put it on her chest. And I, I, th- my interpretation of that was that she had died well for the sake of the child. She'd figured out how to do that. I, I, knowing her, I figured out she'd worked through her anger, worked through what was going on. And she was able to offer a very different way of being in this world through how she died to her child. Tragic, but still. Uh, it would have been more tragic if she had conveyed her anger and distress and fear and all that rather than something else. So, in her situation, she shouldn't, you know, the best gift she could give to her child is don't sacrifice her own welfare for the sake of something else. Don't sacrifice your own welfare and health and. Peace and all that by being angry or being distraught or being somehow, you know, figure out a way, do the practice, move through that. And the Buddha said that. The other hand, the Buddha also had talked about how important it is to work to be together in community and be closely connected. And he used this wonderful expression to live together like milk and water. And milk and water is... um, in contrast to oil, uh, oil and water, milk and water blends and uh, you know, becomes indistinguishable. And so the idea is kind of come together in milk and water. And he asked uh, three monastics who were living together one day, uh, how are you living together? Are you living together as milk and water? And they said, yes, we are. And he said, well, how are you doing that? And he said, they said, replied to him, that uh, when privately, I think what that means is kind of secretly, so not necessarily other people don't see it going on, and publicly, so other people know, uh, we uh, uh, live with each other having um, uh, verbal acts of loving kindness, physical acts of loving kindness, and mental acts of loving kindness. If any of us has a need, we go take care of the need. You know, We clean up their dishes, we set out the water for cleaning and we care for each other and do things for each other. And so we have these two messages from the Buddha, the two hands, uh, to uh, really there's something very personal. It's so personal only we can do it for ourselves, this practice. And then there's the interpersonal, the collective and the community that we work together with and at all kinds of different levels. And, uh, When I think of this, if if you go along with this image of two hands, uh, the place where they get integrated or the place where they kind of, uh, the lines between them begin to dissolve is here in the torso in the chest. And, um, and the image that I have for this, what this looks like is uh, we would open our arms wide, let our chest be open, and we step forward into whatever is happening. That's the movement, step towards and into is happening. And that happens here. So not so much as an individual, me, myself and mine, and not so much as, you know, just completely lost in community. How do we find the balance between these? How do these work together? I don't think we have to figure, sometimes we don't have to figure this out. A lot of this inner work of this discovering what this likes, happens through the practice by being really embodied, being very present for our experience through our body. And here's where the, it all comes into balance and finds its way. The, um, and one of the remarkable things, uh, given know the strong individualism in much of American culture, uh, a strong sense of importance of autonomy and being your own person and being your own self that goes on and are often taught in this culture, parts of this culture, is um, um, the Dharma is kind of a healing from that, from being overdone, overemphasized. And we can start feeling how excessive focus on that is actually a limitation. And certainly the most extreme versions of it, selfishness, uh, is a very dramatic limitation. We actually become more constricted or contracted or more limited the more selfish we are. The more selfish we are and self-centered we are, the more we actually lose touch with ourselves. It's a remarkable thing that, you know, you think that the more selfish you are, the more you're in touch with yourself. But the more you're selfish, the more we lose that touch. But paradoxically, it's the other extreme is also true, that there, in contrast to selfishness, there's also groupishness. And the more that we kind of are lost in the group, or focus on the group, or seeing the le- through the lens of the group the, in all kinds of ways in our society, uh, that also can be misguided and be as painful and contracted and limiting as being selfish. So we go inward, and in popular maybe parlance, we talk about discovering ourselves, going in and discovering ourselves. But when we go inward, into the torso, into our body, into what's here between these two hands, uh, we actually don't find ourselves uh, as a thing or as something, you know, we don't find ourselves as something that, you you know, independent thing. Really what exists here is we go inside and start seeing really what's happening on the inside or what's going on, that it's what's here is relatedness. There's a relating going on. There's relating in the interrelated world that we're living in. And a huge part of what we call the self here is a system of relating to things. We sit down and we relate to our thoughts. We like our thoughts. We don't like our thoughts. we get involved in our thoughts. We have a relationship to our thoughts. If we weren't relating to our thoughts actively, most thoughts would vanish very quickly. If you're repeatedly thinking the same thing over and over and over again, you got a strong relationship going on. You're relating to it with great interest. You're relating to it giving a lot of authority, relating to giving a lot of importance. Chances are there's a lot of self concern that goes involved in that relating going on. Your emotions. They have this amazing uh, uh, claim. I, I've never measured, so I have no, know about this claim, but some of you know the precise length of time better than I. But there's this idea that no emotion would continue for longer than, what is it, 90 seconds? Something like 90 seconds? Unless uh, you're relating to it. <laughs> Unless you're actively involved in fueling it, feeding it, supporting it, keeping it going. I mean, I find that a little bit bordering on being insulting to me. <laughs> you, mean, you mean I'm that responsible? <laughs> you know, and uh, but this, uh, uh, but you know, we're relating to things all the time, and Dharma practice has to do with working on this relating. How what you know, figuring out how we relate. Uh, shifting the relatedness, so we relate without greed and hate and delusion, we relate with generosity and love and, and, um, and wisdom, that we relate with, um, without, uh, instead of clinging and holding on or resisting and pushing and attacking, that we're relating with equanimity or open-handedness or open-heartedness, that we're relating in a different you know, useful way and relating in ways that come from the depth of who we are. At least for my, my mind, I find it helpful to think, or it uh, kind of feels this way, that when we respond reactively, and we relate reactively to what goes on, we're really reacting from the surface of, of this soul system here. But uh, to drop deep down and really feel and sense the deep relatedness that goes on with all the different aspects inside of here, all the different ways that we live together as a community, and really feel and take that in, um, then the way we relate arises out of that. It tends to rise out of our goodness. Tends to rise out of our empathy and connectedness. So this movement of it doesn't have to be physical. You know, no one has to see it. But in the, in, the, in your imagination, this movement of opening your arms, your attention, your awareness, opening your willingness to receive and take in you don't have to walk too far forward you can t- hold your balance but you'll hear and be willing to be open to what's going on is a very powerful movement I think of it as something that's the theme for today is friendship for oneself as being a very friendly thing to do that kind of willingness to feel and experience what's here and if what's here is a lot of self-criticism a lot of shame or a lot of anger or despair there's a wonderful art to doing the same with that and that is take whatever ability you have with your attention your awareness and open it up and step towards it and let it kind of come in to you and what that does it allows the system you if you will be bigger than whatever it is that's troubling you whatever it is that's your challenge that you have And then if you allow it to feel it, allow yourself to be it and let it come in, then you're not so identified with it or caught in it when you're this way. And then the Dharma, the inner torso, the heart, has a way of beginning to shift and change and find a different way of being with it. But if our relating to it is one of struggle, of fight of anger of despair, running away, um, we don't avail ourselves of the profound way in which there can be healing and opening and wisdom and what goes on here. And the same thing is true when we live in community, that if we do the same thing with the people we're with, that rather than hiding or pulling back or rather than, um, you know, being caught up in our judgments and fears of what people will think of us and the whole realm, the things that go on, um, and, uh, but to kind of do the same thing there. Uh, no one has to see it, right? But uh, you kind of step towards and open to what's going on. And feel it. Take in take in the other person. Take in the situation. Take in the experience of happening. Don't hold it in one hand or the other. Don't hold it as an individual only. Like this is happening to me. And why are they doing it to me? Or this, why is this happening to me? Uh, what's in it for me? And don't do it only from the hand of what's best for the community, or why is there's always group and my group this way or that way. Those are certainly valid perspectives at times, but what about this middle place? And for Buddhism, there's a paradigm shift that goes on in how we relate to the whole thing. When we come to our relatedness and come to the rel- how we relate to things, that all kind of is born and rises and moves and dissolves here in this heart, in this chest, in this torso that's kind of open and present for the experience that we have. So if you want to be friendly to yourself, if you want to be friendly to your community, if you want to enter into this profound world of interconnectedness in a healthy way, all the resources, all that you need for that is found within here. You don't have to do a lot of thinking about it. You don't have to read a lot of books about it. It's all found here. And, um, and a lot of it gets, gets really aw- aw- awakened and discovered has a chance to move through you if you don't try too hard to fix things and make it all work, but rather in a kind of silent way or spacious way or kind of a still, inner stillness way, we step forward into whatever's going on, kind of open, receive, step towards, allow it to register in this deep place that exists here in our torso, and our hearts, and then keep opening and keep opening to that. And the family retreat's a great place to do this. It's a big gift that we give to each other when we can keep meeting each other that way, meeting each other that way, and meeting ourselves that way. So I hope that uh, this wonderful retreat, that uh, it's a powerful retreat for parents. Um, my first time I came here to be a parent on this retreat, I thought I was going coming to a family camp. And, um, and I was not prepared that it was a retreat. And... It took me a, a little while, probably day and a half or two days into the retreat, when I was actually struggling quite a bit with it all, to finally wait, Gil, This is a retreat. <laughs> I'm going through all the paces, all the you know, all the things, you know, all the challenges, but with kind of like intensified version of it. <laughs> and uh and so then i started settling into that and over the next year settled into this is a great retreat so if this is challenging it's a great retreat if you if you step forward like this keep stepping forward to this thank you